You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Eric Bonkowski, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And as David already alluded to, uh, with the start of the new year, there is a lot going on in the life of our church. So I, I would encourage you to look through the worship guide and uh, find those opportunities that fit with you. Next Saturday, for instance, we have our second annual Start With Service Day. It's Saturday morning here at Grace Covenant, and we'll have an opportunity for people of all ages to gather together and be involved in some uh, hands-on service opportunities to learn what God teaches us about how we're to give our lives away. There's also another announcement that I want to share that isn't in the worship guide, but next, uh, next Sunday we are going to offer our City Church Basics, and this is a class that we offer quarterly here at City Church for people who want to understand more about the church and also those who are considering becoming members in the church. Um, To become a member, it's required that you go through City Church Basics. If you do go through City Church Basics, you don't have to become a member, though, and that will be offered next Sunday, immediately following our worship service, and then the Wednesday after that. Uh, I think it's the 17th of January. So if you want more information about that, please talk to me after the service. I'd be glad to tell you more. So I want to start off with a confession to you, and it's uh, something that I think you will likewise be able to identify with. There are a lot of days where it feels like my life is a conflict between two different priorities. There's a conflict between God and his way, and then uh, another way of being in the world. And sometimes this conflict kind of feels like just a minor skirmish, but then there are other times when it breaks out into like full-fledged warfare. This battle between the way that God has told us to live and the way that the world is shaping me to live. And the thing about this conflict is it very seldom plays out at the level of philosophy or theology. Sometimes we think that's where the conflict is. But for me, it happens in the midst of everyday life, everyday decisions, everyday priorities and hopes and dreams. It's a conflict that I wrestle with regularly. What about you? You know, this past week, the way it showed up was in reading the mail, We've been, reading, we've been receiving all these wonderful holiday cards, some from many of you. But I can't open these holiday cards without feeling the tension of this conflict. As I read about the, the colleges that other uh, kids have been accepted to, when I see the ways that they've advanced in their careers, when I see how well put together their whole family is, at least for the one moment that that picture was snapped. I begin to feel this conflict or I uh, open up the mail and I get an alumni magazine and I read article after article about these impressive uh, alumni of the school that I went to and I begin to feel as though I don't measure up, as though my life isn't as meaningful as theirs, that my salary isn't 
what theirs is, that the places I go on vacation aren't quite as exotic. You see, what's going on there is this battle, this war between different ways of life, the way that God has called us to live and the way that the world is shaping me. And there are some days where I I don't know which side is going to win out in my life. Do you ever feel that way? I bring that up because um, we're going to start a new sermon series here at City Church today, and it's based uh, out of the Old Testament. So for the last eight years here at City Church, at the beginning of January, we've turned to the Old Testament. We started with the book of Genesis. It took us seven years to get through Genesis. Last year in January, we turned to the beginning of Exodus, and we started on that. And we're going to pick up that series beginning in Exodus 7, and we're going to read together between now and Easter time, we're going to read Exodus 7 through 15. And I think that what these chapters are all about is that conflict, that question of who will win in your life and in my life. What what kingdom, what way of living, what set of priorities, what story is going to win in our lives? And because of that, I think it's going to be really helpful for us. Again, not necessarily fought at the level of philosophy or theology, but fought at the level of the everyday decisions we make. The everyday decisions that show which kingdom we're living in and which kingdom we're living for. All right, so if you have a Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 this afternoon, and these words are also printed in um, the worship guide. You're welcome to follow along there as well. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, as we come before your word today, we admit that it is old and ancient. 
and hard to understand. So we ask that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to make it come alive in our minds, but also our hearts and even our lives so that we would leave here changed people because we have encountered your word as it's written in the Bible and because we've encountered your word made incarnate in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this all in his name, amen. So this sermon series is going to focus on Exodus 7 through 15, and if you're familiar with the book of Exodus or you leaf ahead a couple pages in your Bible, you'll see that it covers the plagues of Egypt, the 10 plagues of Egypt, and then also the Passover as God is leading his people out of Egypt. And so originally I was thinking, oh, this is great. There are 10 plagues, that will be 10 sermons, but that would be pretty dark, wouldn't it? week after week of uh, plague. So we're not going to break it up just that way. But I was really struggling to figure out how do we take these uh, chapters and and, uh, give them the the due that they deserve, but there are different ways to break it up. There are different ways to understand what God is trying to communicate in this part of Scripture. I was really struggling to come up with an outline. And then then a song made it all click. And you're thinking, oh, it's probably a Sandra McCracken song because he loves Sandra McCracken. It wasn't. It was a Moses song. It's a song of Moses. It's actually Exodus 15. And when I read Exodus 15, read this song that Moses sang at the end of Exodus, I began to understand what these prior chapters are all about. And it's about this, the Lord who wins. We actually read together in the call to worship some of Exodus 15. And, and Moses says, I will sing my song to the Lord because he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is one. You see, at the end of the plagues, at the end of the Passover, as, as Israel comes out of Egypt, what does Moses conclude? The Lord wins. And that's the message for us too. It's that the Lord wins in that battle, that conflict that we all feel between the rival kingdoms. And so I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth with you this afternoon as I introduce this series and set it up over the next couple of months. And the first point is simply this, for you to see the rival kingdoms that exist there in Egypt and that exist here today as well. What we have in Exodus 7 The verses I read today, it is God billboarding the next eight chapters. It's kind of a billboard where he says, hey, this is what's going to happen. He lays it all out for Moses and Aaron. He's giving away the ending in a lot of ways, right? He's taking all of the suspense out of this. He says to Moses and Aaron, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to say this and he's not going to listen to you and his heart is going to be hardened, but I am going to draw my people out of Egypt anyway. Well, we can go home. We don't need to read the rest of the story. We know what's going to happen. But there's power in the way the story is told. Because God wants us to know that he's the one who wins. He's the one who wins in the end. As I was thinking about kind of this billboarding of, you know, God here telling Moses and Aaron exactly what he's going to do ahead of time, it made me think of one of my favorite athletes of all time, Larry Bird. Larry Legend basketball player from the 80s when I was growing up, played for the Boston Celtics, and uh, he was notorious 
for trash-talking his opponents. There's this one game in 1986, he was playing against the Dallas Mavericks, and he uh, went to the bench, the Dallas Mavericks bench, and he said, hey, next time down the floor, Danny Ainge is going to pass me the ball in this spot right here, and the next sound that you hear will be the ball going through the bottom of the net. And he did it. That's what God is doing in this passage. I'm not saying that Larry Bird is God. I mean, there are some similarities, right? But that's what God is doing. He is billboarding. He's saying ahead of time exactly what he's going to do. It's like epic biblical trash talking from God. And he's establishing these rival kingdoms. Look again at verse one, because he sets this up. Even from the first verse, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now that's kind of a strange way of putting things. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What's going on there? Well, he's raising up Moses and he's saying, hey, you represent the true God to the one who acts as though he is a God. It's a battle between God, represented by Moses, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And here Moses is being called to simply embody the essence of the human vocation. What humankind has been called to do. It goes all the way back to the the opening chapters of the Bible, to Adam and Eve, where what was their role? They were created, they were designed to represent God, to image God over all creation. In the face of any force that might be against God. You see, Moses is doing the same thing now. He's doing it in this pointed conflict against Pharaoh. And what Adam and Eve first showed us and what Moses himself embodies, then Christ, Jesus Christ, is the fullest culmination of. Because in the book of Colossians, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see, Jesus fully and finally represents God to a world that's gone mad. In the same way that Moses does here is called to do here in Exodus 7. You know, here's another thing to notice about Exodus 7. We're not told which Pharaoh it is. We never, in fact, find out which specific Pharaoh of Egypt it is. Why not? Well, because it doesn't matter. Pharaoh is representative of a rival kingdom. Pharaoh is representative of this nation of people that is against God. So it's his role, it's his representation that matters more than the specifics of exactly which Pharaoh it was. The Pharaoh represents godlessness and chaos. And Moses, as God's spokesperson, represents order and blessing and flourishing. Egypt, we will see in the upcoming weeks, represents forces of decreation. And God represents the good creation, the way things are supposed to be. You know, we know a little bit about the story of Exodus, right? We know that Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and God wants to bring them out. But sometimes we miss some of the finer details of this story. We're told at the very beginning of Exodus uh, that things, although they are enslaved in Egypt, things are going pretty well for them. Exodus 1 verse 7 says this, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that land was filled with them. 
right? That, that's maybe uh, weird for you to hear because we just think that it must be awful and it must be slavery the whole time, but there had been blessings and things had gone well for them there. But what happens in the next verse, in Exodus 1.8, is that a Pharaoh comes to rule who doesn't remember Joseph. The original Israelite who had been the right-hand man of Pharaoh, who had provided for Egypt, who had taken care of Israel. And a Pharaoh comes to the throne who forgets Joseph. That's very important, right? And the rest of Exodus flows out of this. That Israel had been there long enough that the Pharaoh forgot who Joseph, Joseph was. Think for a second. Over that long period of time, what else would have happened? The people of Israel themselves would have forgotten about the Lord, about his blessing, about the fact that he is the one who has watched over them and cared for them. Their hearts would have grown hard. Their ears would have grown, grown dull to the grace of God. It's setting the stage of these rival kingdoms. And look again now back in Exodus 7 at verse 5. So we looked at verse 1 and saw how these rival kingdoms are set up. And then look at verse 5. It says this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. The Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. What's the point of all of this? What, what's the reason and the purpose behind all that God is going to do that Egypt would know that I am the Lord? The Lord wins. That's the point. But it's not just that Egypt would know that. It's that Israel would know it too. And it's written down so that you and I would know it today. That we would know, that we would believe. That the Lord wins. By the end of this battle, by the time we get to Exodus 15, everyone's going to know. It's going to be crystal clear to Egypt. It's going to be crystal clear to Israel. And I hope it's crystal clear to us that the Lord wins. All right, I've already shared a reference from 1986, well before most of you were born. I've got another old reference for you. It's a movie from 1995. It's a great movie. It's called The Usual Suspects. And in that movie, there's a line in that movie where the main character says that the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think that still resonates today. That the greatest trick that the devil is playing in your life and in my life is to convince us that there aren't these rival kingdoms. That we haven't fallen under the spell of a rival kingdom. A kingdom that's set against God in his way. And if we don't believe that, then we don't believe that we need to be rescued. We don't believe that we need an exodus in the same way that Israel did. The devil's greatest trick is convincing us that we aren't captive to other kingdoms. Now I realize this word kingdom, it has some limitations because it's not a word we use a whole lot. Here's my gloss on kingdom. What is a king? What does a kingdom do? It does two things primarily. It keeps you safe and it tells you who you are. Security and identity. So as you think about a rival kingdom over the next couple months, I want you to think about those two points. What is, telling, what is giving you your security and what is giving your identity? And if it's something other than God, if it's something other than the gospel, 
you are captivated by a rival kingdom. That's point one, this rival kingdom. Point two today is that the Lord wins. In the midst of these rival kingdoms that show up in our lives in the everyday decisions that we make, in our dreams, in our hopes, in our priorities, the Lord wins. That's what the second paragraph here that we read is all about, starting at verse eight. It foreshadows the Lord who wins this showdown between God and Egypt, between God and Pharaoh. Uh, If you were with us last year, as we looked at the earlier chapters of Exodus, uh, God first calls Moses, and and Moses doesn't want to be the leader of Israel. He goes to God, he says, send someone else. And so God gives him sign after sign to prove that he will be with him. And what we have here in uh, chapter seven is kind of a recapitulation of that. God again giving signs to prove that he is with Moses. But this time, the signs aren't for Moses, they're for Pharaoh. God gives these signs to Moses to prove to Pharaoh that he is the one who wins. That he's going to win this showdown. And in the battle of security and identity, it's God who will win. And there's, uh, there's a, a really clever way that the Bible is representing these kingdoms here. Did you catch that as I read through? There's a symbol of the kingdom in the form of a staff. You ever take ancient history, right, and look at Egyptian hieroglyphics? All throughout Egyptian hieroglyphics, there are all these different symbols, but one that shows up again and again and again is a staff, often with an ankh symbol at the top of it, right? It went, and it often in the Pharaoh's hand. It was a sign of the kingdom. It was a sign of power. It was a sign of authority. And so what is it that God gives to Moses as a sign that he has authority? It's a staff. Gives it to Moses, he gives it to Aaron. And in verse nine it says this, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. It's a literal throwdown happening in Egypt, right? Who is going to rule? Who's going to be supreme? He takes this staff and he throws it down and it becomes a snake. And at first, Pharaoh and his magicians, his wise men are able to imitate this sign, right? Through whatever sorcery they have, they cast down their staffs and they're able to do the same thing. Oh, no big deal. And, and that's often the case with rival kingdoms, isn't it? They are able to mimic the work of God. They were able to offer an imitation, an imposter that looks okay for a while. But what happens next here in chapter seven? It's key to all that's going to follow. Verse 12 Look at it again. It says, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Do you notice what it doesn't say? We we might expect as we're reading here through verse 12, an Aaron's serpent swallowed up the magician's serpents. But it doesn't say that. It says his staff did. Why? Because the staff is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of God. It was given to Moses and Aaron by God as a sign that he wins. So literally there's a snake pit. All these serpents slithering around on the sand of Egypt. The conflict. Who is going to win? And the staff of Aaron reigns supreme. Devours the others. It shows without a doubt 
that the Lord will win. And of course, this staff and these serpents, it's an important biblical theme, an important biblical image for us. It traces back again to the book of Genesis, where we first see the devil, the rival kingdom of the devil, represented in the form of a snake or in the form of a serpent. And after the serpent has deceived Adam and Eve, the representatives of God in the world, after he's deceived them, there's a curse that comes upon uh, the world, upon people, and upon the snake. And it says there in Genesis 3.15, some of you are familiar with it, it says this, to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. And it's spoken there of the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, right, which looks forward to Jesus Christ. You will bruise his heel. You'll cause pain against humanity because of the fall. But, but the Lord will win. The Lord will crush the head of the serpent. And so what we have here in Exodus 7 is an echo of that. Here we see how God is making good on the promise he made in Genesis 3. His representative, Moses and Aaron, will win the battle against the rival kingdom of Egypt. It's there in Exodus 7, but again, it looks forward to something greater, doesn't it? It looks forward to Jesus himself. And so Cody, earlier in our service, read this passage from John 10. Why John 10? Well, because John 10 recounts how Jesus is the good shepherd. And what would every good shepherd hold in his hand? A staff. Moses himself, we're told earlier in Exodus, was a shepherd in Midian watching his father-in-law's flocks. You see, so the work that Moses is doing here in Exodus chapter 7 is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. The one who faces down once and for all the rival kingdom of the serpent. One who, who in John 10 looks at Satan's kingdom and says that is a kingdom that will only come to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life. You see, life is this conflict between kingdoms. Two ways of living. Two sets of priorities. Which is going to win? In your life, in my life, in the life of Israel, in our life together, as a church. Christ, the good shepherd, with his staff, defeats and crushes the head of the serpent and invites all of us through faith into full life, abundant life, it says in John 10. The true life that we were made to live. So here's the point about Exodus. What you know, if you've been to Sunday school before, if you've read through the book of Exodus, if you've heard people talk about it, you know that Exodus is the story of God taking people out of Egypt. But it's also the story of God taking Egypt out of his people. Because the Israelites had spent long enough in Egypt, long enough in that rival kingdom, that it began to live inside them. Its priorities, its dreams, its hopes, its assumptions had been hardwired into them. And friends, I'm convinced it's the same with us. 
That's the conflict that I feel when I'm reading the mail. Because there's this other rival kingdom that is, I'm not just in it, but it is in me. And I need every day for God to lead me out. And to take that rival kingdom out of my heart. I need every day to believe the fundamental truth of Exodus 7 through 15, that the Lord wins. Even when it looks like this conflict is going to go the other way. When it looks that following God and uh, living according to his kingdom is just one loss after another. No, the Lord is the one who wins. If you live in a rival kingdom, any rival kingdom, for long enough, it will begin to live in you. And what that means is that just as Pharaoh's heart is hardened, so our hearts will be hardened. Just as Pharaoh didn't listen to the word of God, so we will begin not to listen to the word of God. Just like Pharaoh says to Moses, the representative of God, oh yeah, prove it. We say to God, oh yeah, prove it. Prove your love, prove your goodness, prove your power, prove your mercy. We need to be delivered from that rival kingdom and brought back to a place of faith, of believing that the Lord wins. Well, how does that happen? We'll see over the next several weeks how God brings about this work of cleansing us, of changing us. It's the work, quite simply, of repentance. Of our hearts, number one, recognizing the rival kingdoms that we live in and that live inside of us. And saying that they're empty. Of not believing the lies that they tell us. The ways that they deceive us. That's where it starts. And then it means trusting in the God who wins. In turning to Jesus Christ. The one who displays the Lord's victory gloriously and climactically in his death and in the resurrection from the dead. You see, again and again in the New Testament, when the authors of the Bible are talking about Jesus' work, they use the language of exodus. They use the language of deliverance. Because everything that Moses was doing for the people of Israel, Christ has done for us. Friends, we need to recognize that we live in a world of rival kingdoms and that those rival kingdoms live in us. But, but, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, I pray that um, we would know your glorious victory in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And over the next several months, as we read these chapters and verses in the book of Exodus, some that will be hard to understand, I pray that your spirit would bring clarity to us, that we would see that beyond all the details, behind the specifics of the plague and the Passover, the message is clear. The Lord wins. And help us, each of us, particularly in the places that we're struggling today to believe that you could win, where you seem outmatched, where the conflict raging inside of us seems like too much. Help us to believe that Christ has done it all 
and that if Christ is for us, nothing can stand against us. We pray this all in his name, amen.